Hello and welcome to the podcast. This podcast is based on webinar 33 of Black Dog Institute's eMental Health in Practice webinar series and I'm Jan Orman. In this webinar we talked with some experts about hoarding disorder, a disorder which causes much heartache for sufferers, their families, health professionals and sometimes even the wider community. My guests in the webinar were Dr Peter Baldwin, a clinical psychologist and academic at Victoria University whose area of research interest is indeed hoarding disorder, and Dr Simone Eisman, a clinical psychologist who is face-to-face services manager for Lifeline Harbour to Hawkesbury. Simone runs group CBT therapy for people suffering from hoarding disorder. Also with us was John, a man with lived experience as a carer for someone with hoarding disorder, his partner. Most of the live webinar participants said they'd only seen one or maybe at most two patients with hoarding disorder in their careers, but some said they didn't know whether they'd seen anybody with hoarding disorder or not. My panel confirmed that this was indeed part of the problem. People are often too ashamed to tell you about their disorder or they don't actually recognise it as a problem themselves. Because there's a lot of confusion around hoarding, collecting and clutter, I asked Peter to talk to us about the differences between these things. Collecting and saving are just normal things that we all do. It's a part of being a human being. Um, It's an important part of being a human being. Um, But it becomes a problem uh, for some people. And so there's three sort of things that we look at when we try and think about whether it's collecting and saving, whether it's a hoarding problem. Um, first is looking at the acquiring. Is it excessive? Uh, and by that we mean is it sort of over and above what we would expect or what the person would like? Um, and or if it's really difficult for them to stop acquiring, if it's just something that they find a really difficult uh, thing to stop doing. Um, discarding as well, this is kind of a key feature and it's not just not being sure about what to do with something or, or being a bit reluctant to throw things away. It's when discarding is really, really difficult. So it's highly distressing, uh, causes a lot of problems, or people find it just impossible to do. Um, and then the third one is clutter. So, um, again, this is not just about, you know, having a disagreement about how the living room should look. Um, this is cluttered to the point where it's really getting in the way of people living the lives that they want to live and using their homes the way they want to use them. Um, so those are the three kind of indicators that we look at when we're trying to tease apart collecting and saving from hoarding. So, Peter, how prevalent is hoarding disorder? Yeah, it's probably a little bit more common than people think. Um, so we don't have any data from Australian studies, but we've got some big studies from Europe and the US. Um, there's about between the, the estimates are between two and five percent of the population. Um, so even if you think about two percent of the population, that's still quite a lot of people. Um, and when you hit up to five percent, that's sort of heading towards one in twenty people. And then in terms of onset. I think it's a disorder that tends to get associated a lot with older people uh, or it's something that happens later in life, but we see onset early in life as well um, in terms of those key aspects, particularly the excessive acquiring and that difficulty discarding. Um, but like a lot of mental illnesses, the, the, the longer it goes untreated or the, the less opportunity someone has to seek support, um, it just tends to get worse and worse over time. Um, and interestingly, um, like with all mental illnesses, women are more likely to seek support, um, but some of the data suggests that it might actually be more common in men. Um, so that's something to think about as well when people are doing assessments. Mm. 
There's no doubt that hoarding disorder can have a very broad impact on people's lives. The damage can range from financial to occupational, and it can even impact on physical health. Relationships can suffer enormously. I asked John about the impact of his partners hoarding on their lives. I think the the most significant things is really um, the impact on our relationships. Um, yeah, it causes a lot of anxiety and frustration from my side, um, and I guess a lack of understanding of what she's going through uh, in terms of her um, of this mental illness. So um, yeah, it, it's a big impact on relationships, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and only, I mean, fr- from our perspective, it's only a small impact in terms of finance. Um, obviously you need to find storage for a lot of things. Um, yeah, so you're constantly buying uh, storage boxes, furniture, uh, bookcases, that sort of thing, um, yeah, which you wouldn't normally get. Peter expressed his concern about the damage done by sensationalist and judgmental reporting in the media. I asked Simone about the impact this kind of reporting has on the people that she sees. Well, I think it's... It- it will increase their feeling of shame and stigma. And, uh, you know, I'm concerned that articles like this actually um, discourage people from seeking treatment because it also focuses on the very extreme end of hoarding disorder. We don't want people to think that their home needs to be this full before they they seek um, treatment. John's comment about his partner's response to this kind of reporting certainly resonated with what Simone had to say. So uh, for her, um, seeing this sort of article is encouraging that she's really not that bad and she can just continue on um, the way she's been going. Peter had some very interesting things to say about the factors that underlie hoarding disorder. He started with biological vulnerability, which happens to be his own area of research interest. What I started looking at and a couple of other researchers were looking at is how when people are making decisions about their objects, how does their brain respond? Um, And we look at a part of the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex, um, which is sort of down down the bottom in the middle. Uh, It's a pretty important part of your brain. Um, But one thing that's really good at is helping you detect errors in your environment. Um, so for a, a good example of that is, you know, if you're expecting uh, one person to walk in the room, if you're anxious about a meeting with your boss, but your colleague walked into the room instead, um, your brain would quickly help you detect that it wasn't what you were expecting. So interestingly enough, with people who hoard, when they're making decisions about their property and their possessions, particularly discarding decisions, this part of the brain gets really, really bossy. It's much more active than we would expect. But interestingly, when we get them to discard things that don't belong to them, they don't have a sense of ownership over, it actually looks impaired. It's below what we would expect from a healthy person. So it seems a little bit, from the early research anyway, like there might be this sort of error warning system in the brain of someone who hoards that's specifically tuned to this idea of possession. Um, So that's one area of the research. We're kind of looking at biological vulnerabilities, which is pretty interesting. Then there's cognitive vulnerability. So if you think about the building blocks of, of cognition and thought, um, they're things like attention, decision-making, information processing. Um, and with people who hoard, they seem to have problems with attention, particularly what we call sustained attention, which is just their ability to sort of stay on task and stay focused. Um, things like nonverbal intelligence and categorising visual information um, when we talk about nonverbal, we talk about things that we do sort of in pictures and images uh, or in the physical world using shapes. Um, and that kind of makes sense if you think about the way, you know, last time you tidied up your own space, 
that's you know part of your cognition that you're really using um, categorizing things visually and particularly object categorization in particular it's kind of unsurprising that we would see this effect but being able to categorize objects is a really important part of discarding you know keep throw away are we going to put it in this cupboard or that cupboard all of those sorts of things are just things that we take for granted when we're making decisions about our objects um, but in, for people in, uh, who hoard, these seem to be trouble areas for them. And there are inevitably a set of beliefs which contribute to the development of hoarding disorders. Beliefs are really core parts of our cognitive behavioural formulations. So when we talk about beliefs in this context, we're talking about sort of mental frameworks that we all have about how the way the world is or, or more often should be. Um, and they're that lens that we see the world through. So people um, who hoard might have beliefs about objects providing emotional comfort, that they're really important. You know, without these clothes, for example, I'd be really vulnerable or really sad. Beliefs about loss or mistakes. Um, so, you know, my objects or my possessions help me avoid making mistakes or I have a responsibility not to make mistakes around my objects. Beliefs about usefulness uh, can be quite big as well. Um, waste and responsibility. So, so um kind of tying into some of the, the climate change narratives that are around now, it's kind of easy to take more responsibility for our stuff, but the, when the beliefs sort of become either excessive or mean the person can't live the way they want to live, that's when we start, you know, trying to get some wiggle room there and make them a bit more flexible. Perfectionism, I can relate to this one. I'm sure everyone else can relate to this one. The idea that there is a is and should be a right way of doing things, of storing things, keeping things, Memory and attachment can be really big as well, and we can all relate to this. Um, we all have a sense of attachment to our objects, and they remind us of good things. They remind us of good times. So the sense that if I throw something away, I won't be able to remember it or I might be disrespectful to the memory in some way. Mm -hmm. And then sort of stepping back even further, identity beliefs. So we all have this as well. Uh, part of who we are is, is, is what we have and what we own. We really see ourselves a lot in our possessions. Um, so it might be this belief that if I'm going to throw this thing away, I'm actually throwing away a part of myself, a really important mm -hmm. part, mm -hmm. um, which can be an upsetting thing to confront. So now we're beginning to understand hoarding disorder a little better. But how do we diagnose, assess and treat it? Now in DSM-5, we have hoarding disorder. So for a long time, hoarding was considered part of OCD, uh, researched as part of OCD because but some people who experience OCD also have problems with hoarding that look like um, hoarding. But the more we did research, the more we realised that there was this big group of people who didn't actually have OCT. Um, so where they were falling through the, the cracks diagnostically and in research, and when we looked at them, they had this very sort of specific profile of symptoms. Um, so now we've got a, 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 nice, a, a nice clear diagnosis in um, DSM, which really helps us both in research and also in, in assessment when we're, we're doing diagnostics in um, practice. When we look at the really core facets of hoarding disorder, it's really about that the difficulty discarding um, and the, the, there's really strong urges to save, a really a lot of distress around throwing things away. Um, and the clutter as well, getting in the way of living life the way you want to live it. We can't really talk about hoarding disorder without mentioning comorbidity. Probably 50% of people who present with hoarding disorder have um, comorbid depression. Um, that can often present with social anxiety, 
um, also have attention, 28% have attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, comorbid. So my experience is that most people with hoarding disorder will have other comorbid mental health disorders, which again, the more comorbid mental health issues, the more complex the treatment mm-hmm. um, and the more decisions you have to make uh, about when um, when, when you focus on treating hoarding disorder versus treating um, the other disorder. There's often some confusion in people's minds around hoarding and squalor. I think people often think that hoarding and squalor go hand in hand, but they don't really. Um, so if you think about sanitation first, uh, in squalor there's always problems with sanitation. There's usually, you know, rotting garbage or, um, you know, inappropriately disposed waste. Where in hoarding it just might not be present. It can be, but it's not necessary and not necessarily there. Um, The motivation to discard is usually a really big differentiator. So in squalor, it may be that the person has absolutely no opinion either way with you throw their stuff out. They're just not particularly interested in the act of discarding. Whereas in hoarding, there's a lot of ambivalence and it's really impeded by uh, really strong emotional reactions to discarding. Um, And then object value as well. I think this is one of the things that people think in hoarding disorder, they're just hoarding things that a lot of other people would get rid of. It's not the case at all. Often uh, objects can be of great value, um, whereas in squalor, that's rarely the case. It's usually sort of um, it's usually things that ordinarily would be thrown away that just haven't been for whatever reason. There's also a frequent assumption that hoarding is an early sign of dementia. That can be a, a tricky one with differential diagnoses. Um, so we do see things like problems with attention and memory in hoarding, and of course they're going to appear in people with uh, dementia. Uh, the features of both disorders are beliefs about their objects being cues to memory, um, particularly in dementia. It probably is actually a cue to memory. People probably are keeping things because it really does trigger their memory in certain ways. And then those problems with categorization and decision-making, we're going to see them across both disorders to some extent. Um, where it differs is in hoarding disorder, we tend to see this broad range of beliefs about objects that get in the way of discarding. So my objects keep me safe. Perhaps they need love and care or I'm responsible for them. They're particularly beautiful or they're very useful. Um, whereas we don't necessarily see that as much in dementia. What we see in dementia are things like squalor. Um, problems with self-care and self-neglect um, and poor household hygiene. So when there's that failure in self-care aspect to it, um, that can be a good sort of a good, you know, a good cue to ask a few more questions. So I'm getting the sense from this, Simone, that you wouldn't treat the dementia-related hoarding the same way as you treat hoarding disorder. Is that reasonable to say? Yeah, absolutely. With dementia-related hoarding, it would be more behavioural interventions and you'd be putting in structures to compensate for the fact that the person has cognitive deficits that mean that certain executive functioning is not um, possible for them. In the webinar's case study, we learnt that many people present with things other than their hoarding disorder, so we need to be alert for red flags. Presentations that may indicate hoarding issues include interpersonal distress at home, injuries related to the clutter at home, anxiety about having copies of all the paperwork, evidence of repeatedly losing items such as medications, prescriptions or referrals, and very much so reluctance to accept home visits and home care services. Family members are often a better source of information than the patient or client themselves. I wondered if there were any tools we could use to assess hoarding disorder. 
Peter mentioned several, including the Clutter Image Rating Scale. This is a smartphone app developed by Boston University that allows people to rate the clutter in their rooms compared with groups of nine different photos depicting a number of rooms in various states of clutter. I've managed to uncover several people in difficulty with their hoarding behaviour using this app in just the last few weeks. We discussed the risk that people with hoarding disorder and their family members and friends are exposed to including injury from clutter, neglects and danger as a result of poor access for emergency services. It was suggested that mandatory reporting is something that we may need to think about in these circumstances. But what about treatment? Is there a place here for medications? So really the research, the, the medication research has been or fallen victim to the fact that hoarding was once considered part of OCD. So a lot of the pharmacological research uh, is around people with OCD who also have either hoarding problems or might meet criteria for hoarding disorder. Um, so one interesting finding that really came out of that was um, people who received selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which is a really common, a common group of antidepressant medication or behaviour therapy or a combination, there was a real deficit in the impact that we would expect to see. So people who had hoarding symptoms were only getting half the benefit that people who only had OCD had. So things like um, it makes uh, or, or it makes someone less likely to respond to that class of antidepressant medications. Um, and then the more recent meta-analysis has looked at people with hoarding symptoms and two different classes, so the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, but also the serotonin and noradrenergic re reuptake inhibitors as well. And so there's a, the authors of that have called for some cautious optimism, which is always welcome. Um, big range of, of symptomatic improvement across the studies. So um, in some cases, as low as 37%, up to 76%, um, a pretty wide range of effects. But interestingly, um, one of the most effective ones was venlafaxine, which is a noradrenergic um, reuptake inhibitor. And also Ritalin, uh, which has a similar similar effect. So we may need medications to help manage comorbid anxiety and depression, but medications are unlikely to make any significant impact on the hoarding behaviour itself. Well, we've got a slightly rosier picture with CBT. Um, so we know that from several studies that CBT works. Uh, it tends to work most for problems discarding, but that's actually good news because that's the key feature of hoarding problems. Um, the CBT sort of protocol that we use is probably a bit broader and probably expected to go for a bit longer than, say, um, what we would do with someone with panic or generalised anxiety disorder. So it really starts with helping people understand what hoarding actually is, and sometimes this can be helping the people around them understand what hoarding is as well. Motivational interviewing, so getting a sense of where a person's at in terms of their readiness for change, do they really want to, um, that's a really important part. Um, so planning and organisational skills as well. Sometimes people who hoard have just never had the opportunity to learn some of the organisational skills that other, others might take for granted. Um, so that can be really useful. Um, cognitive reappraisal is take, thinking about those beliefs that we talked about before and, you know, not getting rid of them, but thinking about how we can deal with them a bit more flexibly rather than seeing them as rules or dictates. We can see them more as uh, suggestions or guesses that our brains make. Exposure therapy can be really important. Um, so not just discarding uh, exposures, 
um, but also not acquiring trips, just basically helping people place them into a context where they're either having to or, or, or choosing to throw something out or not acquire something um, and really learn that, that that sort of intense drive that they have to engage in those behaviours. Again, it's not a dictate. It's not something that they have to obey or pay too much attention to. They are actually stronger and bigger than it. Um, and then emotion regulation schools as well, often um, saving and acquiring have become emotion regulation strategies um, and I think that's something we can all relate to. Uh, retail therapy works. We know that from personal evidence. Um, but having alternative emotion regulation skills that you can draw upon when things get really intense, that's really important. And one interesting feature of the research is um, home visits, actually therapists or therapy teams going into the person's home um, and helping them and guiding them through some of these components of CBT it actually seems to be a, a, an effective and important part of treatment for some people. For a number of years now, we've been running a 15-week um, group treatment program, and there's a lot of evidence that groups are very effective in terms of treating hoarding disorder. There is so much shame and stigma um, around hoarding disorder, so sometimes this is the first time uh, people can come into a group, share their experiences, and have other people say, I understand how you're thinking and feeling and that can bring a lot of hope and motivation to the person with holding disorder. It is very powerful to be in a group and see other people making um, changes. I like to think of the group as like a flock of birds, someone leading the flock and pulling everyone along with them. And we do some of the more difficult exposure work. People with hoarding disorder, probably the most difficult place to discard is into the rubbish, into the trash, not donating it to someone who might use it. So we spend time in group um, doing that. And it's very powerful to do that while other people are witnessing it and also to witness other people um, discarding okay, it. Okay, so people bring their things in and actually yes. put them in the bin in group. Yes. It seems there are lots of don'ts in trying to help people with hoarding disorder. Don't handle, move or discard their possessions without permission. Don't convey disgust or contempt. Don't attempt to change everything. Don't argue. Don't be confrontational. Don't be directive. There are better ways to approach the problem. Really, at the core of your approach, um, being very respectful and acknowledging that this is uh, an adult who will have their own solutions um, and also their own internal wisdom of what is going to be helpful and where they need to start. Um, so I always like, we always start with your possessions are important to you and I want to understand what makes them important. So in our group, the first thing we do is show and tell with people bringing in items that represent what they collect and telling us about why they've kept them and why they are important. And talking, starting your first question with, you know, what should we discard first, um, we'll often just bring up the wall and, um, and it won't be possible to engage this person in change. What you're instantly drawn to is the stuff and how much stuff there is and that's what you want to change and um, what you need to do is focus on understanding the person because they need to change how they're thinking and feeling. To learn more, Peter suggested we go to the website of the International OCD Foundation. 
He also recommended that we read a book by David Tollin, Gail Steckerty and Randy Frost called Buried in Treasures. That book was written primarily for sufferers, but most practitioners would benefit from reading it. Steckerty and Frost have also written a therapist's guide and workbook, probably the best texts available for practitioner use. There's also an online course available from Hoarding Home Solutions that might be of interest. That's it from us. Hope it's been useful. I'll see you next time.